You know, in life, we're all looking for security. Security in our relationships, security in our friends, security in our employment, security in our government, that the people that we elect will actually do what we ask them to do. But in life, it does seem that security always seems to escape us. Our job is gone because of an industry disruption or people four layers above us have mismanaged the company. Our church crumbles due to conflict. Our families are torn apart by divorce or, or uh, a fraction that has occurred. Our bodies betray us. The very organs that we expect to continue to work well into old age, cancer creeps in. Time and again, in this life, we are looking for security. And time and again, security escapes us. Last week, Kyle... Uh, began a sermon series during the season of Eastertide. And he commented that throughout the church calendar, we have seasons of preparation. For Christmas, we spend preparing for that season of the incarnation of our Lord during the season of Advent. It is waiting upon the incarnation of our Lord. And we look towards his first coming and we look again towards his second coming. Lent is a season of preparation for Easter, where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord that we enter into a season of fasting in order to enter into a season of celebration. But for Pentecost, this day that we celebrate the great giving of the Holy Spirit to God's people, the establishment of the church, we don't spend time preparing for that. And so we thought it would be appropriate to spend Eastertide, which are the weeks between Easter and Pentecost, looking at and seeking the presence of the Holy Spirit in our church and in our lives. Last week, Kyle talked about how the Spirit is the ground for the whole Christian life. He gave a general overview of what it looks like to live the life in life with the Spirit. And today, I want to look and particularly zoom in about how the Spirit brings assurance to the Christian. The Spirit is the one place where you can go to actually find security. In this profoundly insecure world, where things that one time we counted on slip between our fingers, the one place where we can go to find stable ground, to find assurance, to find security, is in the presence of the Holy Spirit, who brings us to the Son, who brings us to the Father. And so today, I'd like to look at Ephesians 1. 11 through 14. If you would, please turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, either open it up on your app or there's a few Bibles in front of you that can be helpful. And I want to look at two things today, really minor topics, predestination <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and how the Spirit applies God's predestining work in our lives to build assurance. So if you would, please turn with me to Ephesians 1. 11 through 14. In him, we have an obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were, in, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our, your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You know, this word predestined or ordained or predetermined has caused so much strife in the life of the church. 
It has caused so many church splits, uh, so, uh, so much anger towards other Christians or your pastor or whoever it might be. And I find it incredibly difficult to understand because it's a doctrine that is just beyond explicitly taught in the Holy Scriptures. It might be one that we're profoundly uncomfortable with, but it's not one that we can avoid. And so today what I want to do is, is begin with some pastoral theology on why this is actually an important doctrine in the Christian life. It's not something that seminary sh students should spend their time debating it well into the evening. That's not really what it's meant for. Rather, it is meant to build assurance in God's people. Now, in any theological question, your starting point matters. If you don't believe me, read the book of Job. Job is a great example of how when you have a bad starting point, you manipulate what God should do or should think to fit your conclusion you want him to you want to have, right? So all of Job's friends are like, man, it's got to be you. You're the cause of this, right? Or, you know, just give up and die. All of these things, right? You can see, read the book of Job sometimes and look at the, the friends of Job as well-intentioned but bad theologians because that's what we're seeing there. Their starting point, while we can understand it, led to a bad theological method and therefore a bad conclusion. So our starting points matter. And often what we have done in the history of the church is we look at this word predestination and our starting point is either justice or the question of, yeah, but what about him? Right? Our heart goes to, but what about our friend that we don't know knew the Lord? Has God hated that person forever? And then is that even an understanding of a just God? And the hard thing for us to understand is that the scripture doesn't actually ask those questions or answer those questions. The scripture begins with a prior question, the question of humanity after the fall, the question that you have and I have, the question the reformers had, and the question that Paul had. And that question is, does anyone want me? Does anyone in this life want me? And sadly, after the fall, the answer to that time and again, we feel like is no. We've experienced it maybe in our marriage. At one time in our life, we felt like this person really wanted us. You wouldn't have gotten married otherwise. But over time, you can't help but think they might have changed their mind. We feel it when our children reject us later in life. This person that you've invested so much time and energy and love into, and yes, you've made your mistakes, but is this level of rejection warranted? Do they want me? You might feel it in your place of employment, a place that you've given so much to, and then overnight they say, hey, this is purely budgetary, but we don't want you. I think we experience this a lot in our current cultural crisis, particularly around sexism and racism, is Either you feel like you are the victim of sexism or racism and that person doesn't want me, or you feel constantly falsely accused of sexism or racism and you feel like that person doesn't want me. All around our lives, we experience this, this undercurrent, this angst of, am I wanted? Or then we also ask, well, if I'm wanted, am I anyone's first choice? I might be a choice. They might put up with me. They might tolerate me because I don't have any better options. But am I anyone's first choice? Am I wanted? And at the heart of the Holy Scriptures is when the believer goes to God, the answer is 
Yes, you have been wanted before the foundation of the world. You have been wanted before there was a you to want. You have been wanted before you did anything to make God happy or make him angry, to praise his name or despite his name. Before there was a you that existed, God chose to be for you. And all of those other questions that we have, and they're warranted questions, they're good questions. Those aren't actually questions the scripture answers. They're questions we import onto scripture so that it fits what we want it to say. But what it actually says is God has chosen to want you before there was even a you to want. Now, we can still wrestle with those other questions of of justice or God's love. And I understand those. They are difficult. But when we look, the only story that we know the answer to is not somebody else's, but it's our own. And the only story that I know is if God had not opened my eyes, I wouldn't have chosen him. If God hadn't chosen to love me, I would have never turned my heart to him. If he had not chosen to pluck me out of the stream of sin and death, I would not have been able to swim to shore. That's the starting point of the Christian life. That's why we always talk, we all sit at the foot of the cross together in humility by saying, I am one who would have never turned to God if God hadn't first turned to me. I can understand anyone's sin because that's exactly where I was trapped until the Lord rescued me. In this life, I might face profound rejection from every direction, but I know where there is one who has always chosen to be for me. And that's the question the scripture answers. That's the question that has been given to you. That's the question that... Paul continually harps on in all of his letters, God has chosen to be for you, not when you were for him, not because he foreknew that you were going to love him and therefore that's why he chose you. That's not in there. It's while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you and chose to bring you into life. That word is a word of assurance. You know, my son So often what we think of with our faith is, you know, I grip onto God. Um, My son, Miles, and I, he and I used to fly fish a lot when he was young. It was his favorite thing to do. He still loves it, but now he really wants to, Dad, we got to start fishing with worms. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) The conditionality of human love. No, son, we're not fishing with worms. Um, I don't know why. Just leave it to anything like your dad does with you. You want to do the opposite when you get older. But okay. So he would say, Dad, we got to go across the creek. That's going to be better fishing over there. Okay, Dad. Okay, Miles. And he would bow out his legs real wide and walk across the creek. And it was moving pretty quick. And he would grip onto my hand. But did his hand hold him across that creek? No. He thought that's what was happening. He thought he was holding on to me, but he was being held the whole way across. It was my hand that held him. From his perspective, from our perspective, we hold on to God. But from beginning to end, 
the word of the gospel is that our God has chosen to hold on to us. And those that he holds in his love, he will never drop. I can't answer all those, second, those other questions. They're important. I, I don't know if we'll have them when we reach heaven. My theory is that we will be caught in the glorious wonder of our Lord and all of our questions will forget that we even had them. Those are important questions, but brothers and sisters, the only one that we can know is that our God has chosen to be for us. There is one place where you can go and you can know that you are held and it's in his presence. You know, a lot of you, I, 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 I don't, I choose to not talk about my uh, doctoral work very often uh, because one, I don't want you to think I'm prioritizing it over the church. Two, I'm a little bit worried that I'm never going to finish it. <laughs> so the less I talk about it, the more I can be like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Um, and three, I'm just worried that it would, it would, uh, it would leak into too many sermons. But some of you know I'm, I'm writing my dissertation uh, at a school in the Netherlands on the theology of John Calvin. And many people have viewed Calvin as, uh, from a couple different perspectives, and they're mostly wrong, uh, just to be fair. <laughs> uh, he's either a demon who can do nothing right, or he's a saint who can do no wrong. Um, He's a head on a stick, right? And it's just a great systematizer. None of those are accurate. He was just a man. A man who was brilliant, yes. A man who loved the church, yes. And a man who loved the Lord. But he was also a man who suffered terribly. And that's what most of my work is about. Mine is, it's on his theology of hospitality. But if you know Calvin, um, he was a man who lived in exile, he grew up in France. We often think of him as a Swiss person because he, he did most of his work in Geneva. That's where he ministered. But he was, he was French and proudly French. In fact, very strong scholarship has shown that his style helped, frankly, form modern French. So if you like the French language, you can thank Calvin for that. Um, but he was exiled from France, a country that he loved. His father was excommunicated from the church. Calvin was excommunicated from the church. His life was constantly on the line as people hunted him and wanted to burn him at the stake. He was exiled into Geneva, and after a few short years of pastoring there, they kicked him out where he went to Strasbourg and then said, hey, we changed our mind, come on back. And he said, that's a fate worse than death, uh, but I must follow God's command. And he went and he ministered to them. And his whole ministry in Geneva was marked by suffering. He lost all of his children in childhood. He lost his wife. Almost every missionary he sent back to France was burned at the stake. And so he would have to minister to their widows and their orphans. Uh, the Genevan upper class, Geneva at the time, was roughly doubled inside due to religious refugees coming out of France into Geneva. And they didn't want them. They couldn't, didn't think they could take care of them. But there was a great deal of xenophobia. We don't like the French, so you guys better just stay away. And what are all these religious exiles doing here? Couldn't you just stay in the Roman church and stay in France? And so Calvin sometimes is known as this kind of curmudgingly character, but that's because you don't actually read the context of it. The context of it is because he was doing advocacy work for French exiles who had lost their home, their livelihood, and their lives were at stake. And so he was advocating for them to have a home in Geneva. His life from beginning to end was a life of exile and suffering. Except one place. 
in the presence of our Lord. You see, that's the theology of Paul. That's the theology of the apostles. Think about it. They lost their families. They lost their social network. They were Jews that had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They were then exiled from everyone that they loved and cared about. Paul was, was a Pharisee. Everyone he cared about was gone. But one place was home. And that is in the electing, predestining, gracious work of God. That has says, when the world rejects you, I have chosen to accept you. And we often get Calvin's theology wrong because we don't actually see it. that is the starting point of so much of his theology. That's what my dissertation is about, by the way. Um, but we also get Paul wrong and the scriptures wrong. You know, the Jews, they, they were not the strongest. They were not the wisest. They were not the greatest, but God chose them. They wandered in the wilderness, but God chose them. They were homeless, but God said, you have a home in me. When we understand that as the starting point of predestination, all of those other things get put in their proper place. It doesn't mean that God has chosen to hate some. We can't know that. But all we can know is that God has chosen to love me in a world where I face rejection after rejection. There is one place where you can be home, and that is in the arms of your Father in heaven. Now, who brings us there? Who holds us there? Who in the Trinity keeps us in the Father's embrace? That work is specifically given to the Holy Spirit. Go back to our passage with me. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we accept, acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How is the spirit described in this passage? Well, he takes that predestining work and he seals it. He confirms it. He assures us of it. He holds us in it. And there's two images that are used of that, a seal and a guarantee. Both of those are legal terms. A seal is what a king would do as, you know, he would have a, a decree. Say like, you know, there's this guy in three towns over. He was accused of something. He's found innocent. The king declares not guilty, writes it out, rolls it up, has a wax seal, and then puts his ring on it. So then you can look at it and say, ah, that's authenticated, right? It's an authentication of the king's authority. And who is the spirit? He is the authentication that God has chosen to be for this one. Now, he's also called the guarantee. Now, a guarantee is similar to like a down payment or what we would call earnest money. So if you're, you know, if you ever bought a house, you have to put some earnest money down and that says, hey, we're definitely going to buy this house at a future date. We have to get all the contract. You know, there's, there's a wait period here. But to show that we really mean business, here's earnest money. Well, that's what that word is. A guarantee here means a down payment or earnest money. Why is the Spirit called that? Well, he is the assurance that if God has said, this one is mine, this is one I will choose to love, 
This is one that I seal as my own. I will send my spirit to dwell in them so that while they may suffer in this life and while they may face rejection in this life, there is an inheritance coming that cannot be removed. Why? Because it's backed by the bank of God himself. There's a down payment with infinite power behind it. Now, we should ask the question, why is the Spirit given that task? Why is the Spirit given that task? You know, the Son, the Father is the one who elects. The Son is the one who establishes that election by dying for us and rising for us to bring us into life with the Father. Why is the Spirit the one who is sent as a seal or a guarantee of our future hope and our eternal life? Well, I'd like to look at two passages quickly because I'm running out of time. This is why I don't talk about my dissertation regularly because I'll pontificate too long. Uh, uh, look at 1 John 4 and Romans 3. 1 John 4, 13 says this, By this we know that we abide in him, meaning God, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. What does the spirit confirm? What does the spirit seal? The presence of God. God's presence is with you. He dwells inside of you. And not only that, he raises you to the presence of the Son. This is why we say, you know, we believe, you know, when people say, well, what do we believe is going on in the Eucharist? Well, we believe that in a pneumatological approach to the Eucharist, the Spirit raises our hearts to the presence of Jesus. And that's why we can say he's truly present in the sacrament. He brings us into the presence of God. But it's not necessarily good news to be in the presence of God, right? Indiana Jones taught us that, you know? You know, you're a Nazi, you open up the, the, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant, bad news, right? Not always good news to be in the presence of God. However, we also need to read Romans 5, 3 through 5. What kind of presence does he seal, confirm, assure us of? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, you've heard me talk about this enough times that I hope now you're all budding Trinitarian theologians. But throughout the history of the church, the, tr the Holy Spirit is appropriated, particularly the gift and mission of love. In the great analogy of the Trinity, St. Augustine and then Thomas Aquinas and all the way up to modern day has said this, God the Father looks upon his Son as his perfect image, his perfect word, uh, his only begotten, and he loves him. He is perfectly lovely in every way. The son gazes upon the father and as the fountain of being, the fountain of beauty, the fountain of all that is good and all he can do is shower him with love. And out of that mutual love, a third is breathed forth, named the, named the Holy Spirit himself. God's love is so deep, it's a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's why when Paul says that the love of God is poured into your hearts and it's the spirit of God that's poured into your hearts, that's saying the same thing. So what we see here is that the kind of presence that is poured into us is the presence of God's love. And what we see of why the spirit is called our seal, our guarantee is because he is the one that brings us into the life of the Trinity 
and he brings us into the life of God's love. And the question we should all ask is, can God stop loving himself? Can God ever stop loving himself? Does the father ever stop loving the son? Does the son ever stop loving the father? If that were to happen, existence would end because God would stop being God, which is, thank God, an impossibility. But if it were, everything would end. The love of God is the foundation of existence itself. And what do we see the Holy Spirit does? This Holy Spirit says, come and join this love. This is a love that is now yours. The same love that the Father showers upon the Son when you are united to the Son, hidden in the Son, clothed in the Son. Now that love that the Father extends to the Son by the Spirit is extended to you. And therefore, the question of can the Father ever stop loving the Son is the same question that you should ask, can God ever stop loving me? And the answer is absolutely not. That's the ground of our assurance that because God has brought us into his love and his love never fails, his love never diminishes over time, his love doesn't have peaks and, you know, canyons, his love is consistently, maximally perfect at all times. And family, that is the love the Holy Spirit holds you in. That's what it means to have Christian assurance. Not how you feel about God today, but how God feels about himself at all times and how he has chosen to bring you into that love. And brothers and sisters, as we talk about the gifts of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit, this has to be the starting point. Because in my experience, we often are very nervous about the Spirit because maybe we have seen misappropriations of the Spirit in the past. We have seen the Spirit is a proof test of, you know, if I speak in tongues, then I know I'm a Christian. Or if, you know, uh, if the Bible makes sense to me, then I know I'm a Christian, right? The charismatic size is this, gift of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, that's a proof test. Where I grew up, the reform side is, if you understand theology and scripture, which is a gift given to you, by the way, then you're a real Christian. Well, that's just another proof test of if the Spirit is at work in you, then you know. No. How we know is when we are held in the love of God. And that assurance spirals out into fruit in our lives. So, for example, the Spirit sanctifies us. How can we be sanctified uh, when we don't know that our status is secure? How can we fight sin when we think, I've got to fight this sin to get God to love me? That always backfires. The only way to actually experience victory in sin is to know first how much you are loved and that frees you to obediently follow God. You know, how the Spirit uses us, moves through us in love to work in the church by giving us gifts. So often we get the gifts upside down by thinking, I need to use this gift so that I'm valued by other Christians and by God. But when we start here, we say we are already as valued as valued can get. 
And so I'm free to use these gifts whether people receive them or not, whether or not I use them perfectly or not. We start with our assurance or even revelation, the Bible. I'm teaching tonight at youth group. Kyle graciously lets, is letting me come tonight. And I want to talk to the kids about how much I did not understand the Bible as a teenager, even a little bit. Um, and, but what I did understand was that God loved me. And that led me to want to read the Bible more and more as I got older. And I started to see that this is just a great letter of God's love for his people. From beginning to end, a life of walking in the spirit has to begin with this starting point that we are held in the love of God. Brothers and sisters, we don't know fully all the answers to the deep questions of predestination. We, we, can't, we can't know other people's stories. We can't know the mind of God. But what we can know is this, that our God has chosen to be for us. That there is one place where we can go where we are wanted. There is one place where we can go and be always held by the never-ending love of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the one that fills us with love. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the one that brings assurance to us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the one that gives life. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us in your love. You would assure us in your love. You would give us eyes to see your love. And that from there, we might follow you into obedience and sanctification and using the gifts that you have given us of serving you and serving others. To the glory of your name. Amen.